0: Hi sir.
1: How are you today? Fine, thank you. That's good. Now, Rowan, how long have you been working with the EU?
0: 11 years.
1: Which has been your favourite year? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. This year. (laughs) Um, So, you've been here for a little while, you've seen public meetings and the EU grow and change throughout the years. Yeah. Um, What is it about public meetings that has changed since you started with the EU?
0: Well in some ways not much has changed. Um, ever, the EU has been having public meetings for most of its 86 year history and the feature of those public meetings is pretty much the same. That is the EU opens up God's Word, the Christian Bible, seeks to understand the Lord Jesus through it so that they might know better both Jesus' great love for us and that we might respond in love to him. So in some ways nothing has changed. But you know, originally public meetings weren't terribly often. Then they became weekly, and then they became twice a week, and then now they're three three times a week. And we're in different rooms, so sometimes we've been in PNR down in engineering, sometimes we've been in GLT over in the quad. But you know, in some ways, not much has changed actually about public meetings. Cool.
1: Um, so each year we go through a different book. Do you want to tell us what book we're going to be going, we're going through do this year? We're going to do the Gospel of John
0: this year.
1: Awesome. And if there was one thing you wanted us to take away from the Gospel of John at the end of 2017, be okay. uh, Well, I think John
0: has written this book, as we'll talk about in a minute. He's written this book, so you might have a bigger and richer picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So I think, therefore, it'd be great if we all got through our time looking at the book of John together with a bigger, richer picture of who Jesus is and more deeply understanding his great love for us.
1: Great. Thanks, Ryan. Um How about I just pray now and then I'm going to read from God's word. So please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that because of his gift of love and grace to us, we can approach you with confidence. We thank you that because of that love, um, we can have an intimate relationship with you and open your word and hear from you. Uh, Father, we thank you for the 87 years um, of EU history. We thank you for public meetings and how we can have them on campus um, without any fear of prosecution. Um, And we thank you, Lord, that um, you do speak to us in your word and that we can hear more about the character of Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we um, open your word now, that you take away any distractions from our minds. Uh, Lord, may we be thinking about the character of um, Jesus and may we be knowing him more and more uh, in this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. but you have saved the best wine till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days.
0: Well, it's very exciting to be here with you at the EU public meeting. I've got a question for you, though. I want you to meet the person next to you, be friendly, smile, introduce yourself. But I want, I've want got two questions I'd like you to ask that person. The questions are these. What's the best magic trick that they have ever seen and what's the best magic trick they can do? It'd be pretty cool if they had the same answer to both of those, but talk to the person next to you. What's the best magic trick they can do and what's the best magic trick that they've ever seen. Okay. Hand up if the person you just met, hand up if they had actually seen an awesome magic trick. Hand up if that person had actually seen, what was the awesome magic trick they'd seen? Yeah. That's pretty impressive, sawing a person in three. Hand up if the person next to you could do an awesome magic trick. I can do this one. Ready? You watching? Ah! It impressed my kids when they were four years old, no end. So, what we just had read for us, what Issa just read for us, was that just... Jesus doing some awesome magic trick. I mean, did you pay attention to what was actually read there? Jesus turned a very large quantity of water into wine. It didn't just change colour, didn't just look red, because was an excellent, most fantastic wine. That's a pretty impressive trick. Well, was it a trick? Is he a magician? Is he some sort of con man? What's going on there? How come Jesus could do that? Well, we're going to explore a little bit about that today. Now, it's no surprise that you come if you come along to an EU public meeting that you see us talking about Jesus because, well, if you came along to O-Week at all, you literally, if you just walked onto the campus from City Road, you would walk on about five steps and there, there was the EU, right? And what have they got on the back of their shirts? They've got that Jesus is Lord. The EU clearly want to talk about Jesus all the time. So they write Jesus on their shirt so you can't possibly escape it. Why why does the EU constantly want to talk about Jesus? Well, it's because the the EU believes that there are two crucial questions that every single human being should seek to answer about Jesus. I'm not overstating it there. They believe there are two crucial questions that every single human being ought to ask about Jesus. The EU thinks it's these two questions. First of all, who is this guy? I mean, we know his name was Jesus, we know he lived in Nazareth, we know that he was born, you know, 2,000 years ago, we know he died under sort of the Roman occupation in the time of Pontius Pilate, we know that his disciples claimed that he was raised from the dead and they claimed that they were actually able to see him and touch him. We know these facts about his life, but who is he? Who, more than just his name and location and time, who is he in the great scheme of things? The second question we want to answer is, what was he really on about? What was his purpose? What was his agenda? What did he come to actually do and achieve? Now, the reason the EU thinks these two are crucial questions that every single person has to answer is because if you are a reader of the Bible, the Christian Bible, then and you t- treat it as God's word, which is what the Evangelical Union does, those two questions are constantly fed to you from the Christian scriptures. They're the two questions that you have to deal with as you read the Bible. Who is this guy Jesus? And what is he really on about? And so the EU says, because this is God's work, well, we're on about those questions. And so how are the EU going to help us all understand Jesus better and answer those questions this year? Well, their plan is... In the EU public meetings every year, the EU chooses a book of the year, that is a book from the Christian Bible. This year they've chosen the Gospel of John. Now that doesn't mean that every single public meeting will be from John's Gospel. What it does mean is that over about four different sort of groups, times in the year, we will do a couple of uh, several public meetings, looking at John's Gospel. And interspersed between those series, we'll look at other stuff, other books of the Bible, other Christian topics, to sort of mix it up for you in the course of the year. But the thing we're going to keep coming back to is John's Gospel. And I'll be uh, here helping us open up that part of God's Word together. Now, John's Gospel is a great place to go if you do want to answer these sort of questions about Jesus. After all, the Gospel according to John was written by John, and John tells us in chapter 21 that he was an eyewitness to the person of Jesus. He didn't just hear about him. He was actually there. He was there with Jesus for the three years of Jesus' public ministry, all the way through to Jesus' death and his appearance raised from the dead three days later.
1: John was an eyewitness of all these
0: things. And John tells us in chapter 21, his purpose. sorry, chapter 20, his purpose for writing this account of Jesus' ministry. It's very interesting what he says. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Just think about it for a moment. If if you walked around with me for three years, every day you're with me, stuck with me, I mean, I feel sorry for you. And then you decide, I'm now going to write about my experiences. I'm going to write the life of Rowan over three years, for those three years. And you would have to be selective, wouldn't you? You couldn't write about every single thing I did over three years. That would be mind-numbingly terrifying. But you would be selective. And that's what John's saying he's done, right? Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book, but then he says, but these are written, he's chosen these particular episodes out of Jesus' life so that you, the reader may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Notice what he says there. He writes it so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's about who Jesus is, right? His identity. And that by believing, you might have... John has written this account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection so that you can know who Jesus is and what he's on about. So it's a good place for us to go. So that's what we're going to be doing this year. So, where would be the right place to start if you're going to read John's Gospel? You start in chapter 1, right? Start, start at the beginning. But of course, that's not what we're going to do. No, we're going to start with John chapter 2. Why? Well, because I'm crazy. I'm just a little bit crazy, I think. No, what? I'll tell you why we're not starting with John chapter 1. It's because you can't handle John chapter 1. <laughs> that's the truth that's the absolute truth if i was going to start with john chapter one your head might explode and you would just be a loss for the rest of the the rest of the week well i mean it's thursday afternoon so maybe that's not a problem for you so i just thought that's too hard too much too grand a picture for week one of public meetings i'm gonna start with john chapter two now We'll see whether that was a smart move or not as we go along, I guess. It's not entirely stupid, in my own defence, um, because at the end of the little reading we have in John chapter 2 that Issa read for us, John, the writer, tells us, he says, This, the first of Jesus' signs, he did at Cana in Galilee, and he revealed, he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now notice that for a minute. What did John just say was the purpose of him choosing particular things out of Jesus' life and writing about them? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. And here is the first sign, the first moment that he's chosen to record in some great detail. And as a result of what Jesus did at this particular wedding when he turned water into wine, the disciples did believe in Jesus. It had that effect on them. And so now John is writing it so that it might have helped with that same effect in you, so that you might believe and have life in his name. So it's not a crazy place to start in my own defense. So let's get into John chapter two. Um, I have six things to point out, John chapter two. Now a, a word of warning. a word of warning. Uh, this talk that you're currently sitting in. This talk is a bit like a roller coaster. What I mean is this: when you get into a roller coaster, you jump in and you strap yourself in, yes. And you know when you take it and starts off, it just goes, yeah, it's all very flat and calm and sedate. That that that's the current moment, okay? Check along, and then you go up the big hill. You start going up, it goes slows down as you get all the way. You drag up to the top of the hill. When you get to the top of the hill. Ah, it's crazy and then there's a corkscrew ah, and then you finish and you get up and you wonder you're all bit shaken, bit you go wow what was that <laughs> yeah that's what we're doing today right so so at the moment at the moment we've been chugging along right now we're going up the hill for a little bit all right gonna go up the hill and i'll tell you when we get to the top and that's when you on to hold onto the desk, okay? All right, so what we're doing is we're gonna chug up the hill. Six points to note about this. Now, hand up, actually give us a little cheer if you study engineering or science. Yeah. Nice. Give us a little cheer if you study the humanities. Yeah. Uh, let's see the hands, hands for engineering and science. Right, hands for humanities. Oh, yeah, okay, so not quite as many humanities. Um, if you're studying engineering and science, yeah, it's going to be a bit tough for you. <laughs> but let me tell you why. It's because, see, when, when the one true living God gave us his word here in the Christian Bible, he did not give it to us in dot points. <laughs> I know that if you're an engineering and science student, that's deeply disappointing. <laughs> Because now here you are having to deal with a text. And at, and at that point, all the shivers at HSC, sort of English, <laughs> run through your body and the oh, the text, the text, not the text. I thought i escaped escape the text. But that's how the one true living God, in his wisdom, has given us his word, in this case, as a narrative, a story. But we've already seen, John says, he's been very carefully selective about what he's put in here so he's shown great care as an author so what's our danger as readers our danger and especially if you're a science or engineering type person is you will under read the text you will just skip over details you're just skipping through not paying careful attention he has taken great care in putting this account together and you need to pause and stop and try to read it attentive- attentively so, my hope, actually, if you keep coming back to EU public meetings, as we come back and read God's Word together, is to help you become a more attentive Bible reader. So that you won't underread God's Word. Now, if you're a humanities person, you're going, yeah, yeah, you tell those engineers and science people the beauty of the text, right? But me, a little word to you, if you're a humanities person, right? Your great danger is you will overread the text. Because hey, you did extension one English or extension two English and you can, you know all about sort of postmodernism and you can deconstruct any text with your eyes shut. Like you can just pull it <laughs> apart and make it mean anything and you got high marks for doing that sort of creative license, right? Yeah, well, let me just say, I mean, if you want to take it up with me later uh, over afternoon tea about why I think you need a little bit of sort of um, epistemological control on your reading of a text that actually you need to respect the authorial intent that lies behind it and wrapped within it so you need you can't just make the text mean anything you got to be careful not to overread a text you need to respect the controls and the author, the author's intent so I want to try to help us do that too that being said here's the six things going to whiz through them here are the six things that i think from this little account particularly standard, you're going to need it open in front of you i'm not putting it all up on the screen so call it up on your phone maybe or open up a bible if you've got one john chapter 2 just the first 11 verses the very first thing i want us to note is just in the very first four words really easy to miss how does the whole account start the way john writes it down he says on the third day hang on, on the third day? Well, what happened on the second day? What about the first day? Well, this is why it's completely stupid to start with John chapter 2. It's just dumb. It's like, whose crazy idea was this? Because clearly, we were meant to start beforehand to get the, the flow of days, yeah? Now, the thing is, when you go back and read John chapter 1, guess what? There's not just three days. There's seven days. Now, don't take my word for it. Have a look at the text in front of you. Have a look at it. In John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, John narrates some particular events that happened with Jesus, and John the Baptist in particular. Then you get to verse 29, and he says, the next day, so that lands you in day two. Then in verse 35, again, it's the next day. So that lands you in day three. Then in verse 39, he says, and they spent the rest of that day with Jesus. So that takes you to the end of day three. Then verse 40, we, he tells us, the first thing that Andrew did, which seems to imply that be day four. Then in verse 43, it's the next day. So that's day five. And then we come to the verse we started with, chapter two, verse one. On the third day, now they counted inclusively. That is, today is day one, tomorrow day two, the next day is day three. The third day from today is what well, we would say two days' time. So if you start on day five, the third day is six, day seven. So you get seven days. Big deal. I'm paying attention to the text. Does it mean anything? Well, here, here we go, right? We're still just going up the hill. But seven, seven, seven days. A week, a week of days. Um, Can you think of any other place in the Bible, in the Christian Bible, where there's a week of days? Go on, call it out. Yeah, Genesis chapter 1, when the one true living God created all things, it's recorded as a narrative over seven days. So what's... Is John trying to tell us something here? This is the only place in John's Gospel that he has a sequence of days like this. And here it is, right at the beginning of the book. Now, if you go, I don't know, Ron, that feels a little bit, that feels a bit of a stretch. Well, have a look at John chapter 1. Look at the very first few words in John chapter 1. In the beginning. How does Genesis chapter 1 start? In the beginning. He is deliberately echoing Genesis chapter 1 in the way the first chapter starts and in a sequence of days. So my suggestion to you is what you have here is a week of days with a deliberate echo of Genesis chapter 1 and the, and the, the original creation. What's he saying here? Is this, is this like a new creation? Something of that scale and significance? Now, this turning water into wine happens on which day? What happened in day seven of creation? What did God do on day seven? He did nothing. Yes, he rested. Oh, but actually, so you think day seven is just having a bit of a rip, a a bit of a sort of a kip and a rest, right? After all that hard work. No. In the original creation, day seven is the climax. Because God has created everything, He set everything in motion, and now the whole universe operates under his presence, with all of his provision. Day seven is the climax. So here, on day seven, the climax of these new week of days, Jesus does something. He turns water into wine. What's that about? Not there yet. That was just the first four words. <laughs> we're, but we're gonna accelerate a little bit as we go up the hill. Second thing to notice. How is the events we out? So here's Jesus and his mum and the disciples. They're at a wedding. Uh his mum come, they run out of wine at the wedding, which is the bridegroom's responsibility to provide. Jesus' mum comes to Jesus and says, Oh, they've run out of wine. Maybe it was a family wedding. Maybe it was someone they, you know, they obviously all knew together. So there was a sense of shame about they've run out of wine. Jesus, can you do something? They've run out of wine. Jesus' response is very interesting. If you've got it there in front of you, verse four, Jesus basically says, Providing celebratory wine for this wedding, not my, not my game, not my issue, not my concern. In fact, the Holman translation, puts it. I think, captures it well. What has this concern of yours, Mum, to do with me? This is not my concern, Mum. This, this is not my agenda. This is not the main thing I need to solve, need to attend to. And then he gives a reason. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, I confess, I often uh, struggle to understand what Jesus meant here. My, my hour has not yet come. Is he saying, not my time to do anything? But then he goes and does something. He then turns water into wine and solves the problem. So uh, I couldn't work out what's he talking about. Like, and then you realise, ah, I'm under-reading the text. My hour has not yet come. And now you're going... Yeah, don't know what you're talking about. Because you haven't read the rest of John's Gospel yet. Because if you now go away this afternoon and skip your lectures, or don't skip your lectures, but you know, and just read through the rest of John's Gospel, and you pay careful attention to every time that phrase, my hour or the hour. You know what? Every single time in John's account that he uses that phrase, it refers to the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection and return to the Father every time so what is jesus saying he's saying my hour the cl- the moment where i will really sort of achieve what i need to achieve that has not yet come so i think uh, to sort of paraphrase jesus he's saying to his mum, you want me to provide the celebratory wine for this this wedding this wedding celebratory wine is not my concern The real celebratory wine, I mean, if you want me to provide celebratory wine, the real celebratory wine will flow when I've finished my work, when my hour has arrived. That's when come and talk to me, and I'll I'll provide the wine at that moment. Nevertheless, in verse 5, Jesus' mum says to the servant, look, do whatever he tells you to. She just flicks it back to Jesus anyway. And ever the dutiful son, Jesus then decides to do something about it. Something that points forward to what he one day will do. He gives a sign, an indicator, a little glimpse into the wonders of what he one day will do. So what happens? Well, we read there, Jesus sees six stone jars which we, the kind used, John says, for Jewish rites of purification. I've got a picture here. They've archaeologists have found jars like this. This is an example of a Jewish purification stone jar. They're very large, very large. And so when you've got six of them, you've got to imagine six of those sort of lined up together. Between them, they probably held between 500 to 700 litres, which is, which is a lot of water, right? So there's six. He sees six of these stone jars. He then says to the uh, servants who are there, "It says fill them up." So they go to these six stone jars and they fill them. John says to the top. Now, that's just a detail in the story. Doesn't mean anything. Six. Sto- think six. Six. Six stone jars used for Jewish purification rites, that's got to do with the Old Testament law stuff, stuff that they, the ritual cleansing that they would do to fulfill all the Old Covenant law stuff and now Jesus is saying fill those babies up to the top okay and then he says now go, take some out and take it to the chief steward, the head waiter the person in charge of managing the feast, take it to them That guy, we read, drinks some and says, this is fantastic. Most people bring out the best wine first, and then when everyone's feeling a bit tipsy or drunk, you bring out the cheap stuff. But you, look, you've saved the best, he says, till now. So what does Jesus do? He turns this water into wine. It's a... Miraculous provision of a massive abundance, 700 litres of excellent wine. 700 litres, like, that's, a, that's, that's 900 bottles. 900 bottles of wine and of excellent wine. This is not the cheap stuff you get from, from the local liquor mart. This is Grange Hermitage, which means nothing to any of you because you can't afford to drink it anyway. <laughs> so this, this is the most excellent wine. Well, you've arrived actually. You've arrived at the top of the roller coaster. What does this mean? Turning six stone jars, Jewish purification, filled to the top of water, and now turned into this most magnificent, excellent wine, heaps of it, what does that, what does that mean? Here we go, ready? You know why? This is so amazing. No, you don't know why this is so amazing. And the reason you don't know why is because, and I'm talking about me too, we don't know our Old Testaments well enough. See, John's writing as a Jew. He's writing with all of the Jewish Old Testament in his mind for his whole life. And he's writing this this account of Jesus expecting that you, the reader, and me, would have all of that sort of background. So that when he says, and the water was turned into wine, you're meant to go, oh my goodness, that's incredible. I know what that means. But you don't know what that means. So I have to help you understand. And here we go. Where are we gonna go? Amos. And Isaiah. Here we go, really fast. Amos chapter 9. you familiar with this chapter of the Old Testament? Probably not. That's okay. Here we go. Here is the one true living God through the prophet Amos giving a promise. And this is what he says. He says, in that day, meaning the great promised future day when God would fulfill all of his promises to Israel. He says, in that day... I will raise up the booth of David or the tent of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about the promises God made in the Old Testament to King David that one day a descendant of David would reign, would rule on the, on the throne of Israel forever. This was a promise he made, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here, later on in Amos, God is saying, in that day, I will raise up David's tent. I will put someone back on that throne. What else does he say? Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, that all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills will will flow with it. There will be an abundance of wine. Isn't that a great picture? Down the hills in that day when I restore the throne to David, when I bring Israel back from exile, as he goes on to talk about. The wine will flow on that day. So the flowing of wine, the abundance of wine is associated with the restoring of the promises to David, the bringing of Israel back from exile. What about Isaiah chapter 25? One of my favourite passages in the Old Testament. Uh, The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Now, well-aged wine, old wine, is not like old milk. (laughs) Well-aged milk, bad. Don't drink it. Well-aged wine, beautiful, beautiful. The Lord is going to create a much food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. Okay, so he's, he's going to have this sort of great feast of great wine. Great. What, what's he actually going to do? Oh, read the next bit. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil of that is spread over all nations. Think about that for a minute. The covering that is spread, cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread, the veil, that is spread over all peoples. I've got a big veil. I'm putting it over absolutely everyone. No one escapes. I've got to go all the way to the very, very back. (laughs) There's a big veil. A covering that is over everyone. What is that veil? What's that covering? What does he say? Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What is the thing God is going to do on that day? He's going to take away death. And then the celebratory wine will flow. So come back to what Jesus does. He takes these six jars used for Jewish Old Covenant purification rites. He fills them up and transforms it into an abundance of fantastic wine. He's saying, the old, the old has gone. The Old Covenant is filled up, finished, completed. And I'm giving you a sign of what my hour will really achieve. That David's descendant will ascend his throne. That Israel will receive all of God's promises. That death itself will be gathered up by God and taken away from all the people. That's the celebration that will happen when he completes his hour. Now, what does John say as a result of all this? Oh, and you might think, well, are you overreading it, Rowan? I say, no, you can go back and check John's chapter one, where he gives his overview. He says these very same things right at the beginning. So I, I would say this is not an overreading of the story, that he talks about Jesus as the Christ, the descendant of David in chapter one. He talks about grace replacing grace, that is the new covenant that replaces the old. He talks about that in him was life, eternal life. The overturn of death. All of those things have already been introduced in John chapter 1. I don't think it's an overreading. But the thing to then see is that through this sign in verse 11, Jesus, we read, revealed his glory. Now, you might think, yeah, Jesus is pretty glorious. I guess he's able to turn water into wine. That's not the deal. Jesus' glory is not that he can do miracles. Jesus' glory is his identity. Now, you remember how I said there was a little corkscrew at the end? This is it, right? Yeah, okay, I'm sort of on top of what Jesus has done. No, but you see, the glory of Jesus that he reveals here is not that he can do magic tricks. The glory is it reveals who he is, his identity. See, in John chapter one, the chapter before, John starts by saying, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus' glory is his identity, that he is God the Eternal Son, become a human being. The glory of Jesus is that the Creator has become a creature, that Jesus is fully fully divine. It's his identity that is his glory. And in this sign, he reveals his glory, who he is, and his disciples see and believe in him. What do you see as you look at this story? John has brought you there to that wedding, Like right? This was a private sign. Not everyone knew what was going on, but now John has brought you there. You've seen it. Do you see his glory? That's why he can do this trick, right? Trick. That's why he can do it. Because you can't do it. I can't do it. But when the creator of the universe becomes a human being, the one through whom all things were made, the one without whom nothing was made that has been made, when, when that one becomes a human being, yeah, he can turn water into wine. It's because of who he is. So finally, we finish with this. What response do we make? Notice the response to the disciples themselves. Verse 11, this, his disciples saw his glory that was revealed and believed in him. That's the whole purpose of John recording this story. So the people like you, like me, might understand who Jesus is and might put our trust in him, where we might believe in him. I guess uh, there's a couple of reflections on this. Depending on where you're at yourself might determine your sort of response you make to this. Uh, if you're not yet a christian i'm really glad that you're here because there's nothing more important actually in your time at university than answering those two questions who is this guy jesus and what is he on about so i'm really glad that you're here i hope maybe that you might be able to come keep coming back so that with us you can dig into john's gospel and come to an understanding of who jesus is and what he's on about If you're already a Christian, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, I think this is the takeaway. Here it is. Out of this story, remember Jesus' glory. The takeaway out of this, I think, is remember Jesus' glory. See, it's really easy, speaking for myself, and I think from speaking to many students over many years, it's really easy to sideline Jesus in your life as a Christian, and forget his glory. Jesus becomes a part-time interest in your life. You know, when you go to church, or you're a youth group, or you're in an EU, or you're, you're then sure, yeah, you know, Jesus is front and center. But in the rest of life, he becomes the part-time sort of interest. Don't sideline Jesus. Don't forget his glory, who he is. See, Jesus is not just an idea, even though we read about him in a book. He's not just an idea. He's not just a philosophy. Even though, yes, if you embrace Jesus, it will change your whole worldview. Jesus is not just a historical figure. Though he is a historical figure, and you can investigate him with the tools of history. No, Jesus is a person. No, Jesus is alive. He's a living person with this glory. Don't forget Jesus and his glory. Don't be ashamed to read your Bible on the train. Don't be ashamed to read your Bible on the bus. Don't be ashamed to wear an EU t-shirt saying, Jesus is Lord on the back. Don't be ashamed to stand up and say, yeah, no, I'm a follower of Jesus in your tute or in conversations with your friend, Don't be ashamed because what have you got to be ashamed about? He is alive and he is glorious. Don't be ashamed. Remember who he is. And remember the amazing things that he came to do in his death and resurrection for you, that you might have life. Isn't that great?
1: Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is glorious and that he is alive with this glory now. Father, we thank you that he came to fulfill this new covenant and to bring us salvation and to bring us into a relationship with you. We thank you that this glory is revealed to us now and that he is all powerful. Uh, Father, I pray that as we start off our uni weeks, whether it be our first year or whether we be seniors, I pray, Lord, that you would give us great boldness and courage to not be ashamed, to read our Bibles, Lord, whether that be on public transport or around campus. Lord, help us to have courage to wear our T-shirts on campus and to tell people, um, whether in our chutes or in our friendship groups, Lord, that we believe in you, Lord, because there is nothing to be ashamed about because you are glorious, Father, we pray that um, as we continue to read through John, um, give us uh, yeah great wisdom in doing this. Help us, Lord, to um, love you more and more through this. Um, and help us, Lord, not to forget um, how glorious uh, Jesus is. We pray this in the name of your son and for his glory. Amen. Um. So PM fun times don't end now. We have... Uh, afternoon tea to the left there's a set of stairs and there'll be some food there please stick around Rowan will be around if you've got any questions to ask him Um, also please don't forget to fill out your connect cards it's not too late to volunteer to be on public meeting team Uh, thanks guys and I'll see you next week